Bible, um, please see us afterwards. We'll get you one. Um, because we believe, we believe in this book uh, that we think is the Word of God and only good can come out of you owning it and reading it. So um, if you have one this morning, we're in John chapter 11. And I'll just ask at the start if you just join me uh, in a word of prayer. Father, I don't pretend to even think uh, that I'm worthy of this duty. Um, God, this is your word. Um, this is your son that we speak of. Uh, and so I ask now that you would just remove me, remove the distractions in this room, remove um, the worries of life. And God, may you just make your presence felt and known now. We pray that your word would not return to you void, but you would use it um, to accomplish your work. And we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from playing as early as age four to sitting in my grandpa's living room watching the Chicago Cubs on WGN, I've been a baseball fan my entire life. Um, for those of you visitors this morning, I, um, I don't know if you know, maybe some of our own people don't know. Uh, the Chicago Cubs are actually the official professional baseball team of First Baptist Church in North Terre Haute. Um, so if you're a Cubs fan here today, you're welcome. I know what you're thinking. You may be thinking, well, I'm a Cardinals fan. What's that mean for me? Um, you're welcome too, and here's why. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, but I came for the sick, okay? <laughs> and this is a safe place for you to come and admit your failures and get help, all right? We're here for you. Um, but I've loved baseball my whole life, and uh, about 15 years ago, however... Um, at least on the professional level, the game of baseball began to change. And at first glance, it seemed like it was for the better or maybe more exciting. And what happened was the players in the game kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they kept hitting baseballs further and further. And at the time, it was really exciting, but really, those of us in the baseball world should have known better. For example, before the year 1998, in over 100 years of baseball, only two players had ever hit 60 home runs in a season. Roger Maris hit 61 in 1961, and Babe Ruth hit 60 in 1927. That was before 1998. Then in a span of four years, from 1998 to 2001, these are the numbers people started putting up. Mark McGuire hit 70 home runs in 1998, 65 a year later. Sammy Sosa hit 66, 63, 50, and 64 home runs in four consecutive years. Then in 2001, Barry Bonds, who'd never even hit 50 home runs in a season before, hit 73 home runs in one year. They were not alone. Guys who used to hit 30 were now hitting 50, where previously 40 home runs was an incredible season. Now it was just expected out of any decent player. And people fled to the parks and attendance rose and the home run chase in 1998 was one of the most watched sports stories of the year and everyone was in awe and everything seemed good until a guy by the name of Jose Canseco wrote a book. And in the book, Canseco, a former player, wrote about how he and hundreds of other ballplayers were using every steroid that they could get their hands on. And people began to start looking into his claims and investigating his claims and one by one, each big name, each record setter was busted. Fans began to turn on them, writers began to call for their records to be erased, and now most of these guys are up for the Hall of Fame, and even though they hold the greatest records in the history of baseball, they're not getting near enough votes to get in the Hall of Fame. Why? Well, it's because what they accomplished wasn't legit. See, the players in the steroid area simply weren't what we thought they were. They weren't authentic. They actually really weren't better than everyone who'd ever played before them. Instead, they were cheaters. 
Guys who found a shortcut, guys who found a way to overtake records with the help of drugs, and now every single record seems stained, every video replay leaves you with an empty feeling because it just wasn't real, it wasn't authentic. Now, authenticity is one of the highest valued characteristics a human can have, isn't it? We want to know that what we see or what we perceive or what we believe or what we think something or someone to be is really legit because we we feel cheated when the things that we witness or believe turn out to not be legit. Now, throughout history, there's been one man, one man whose whose authenticity has been questioned more than any other. One man who, who not only why he was active on this earth, but also for centuries now after, people have made it their beliefs, they've made it their philosophy, their life mission to cast doubt on his authenticity. And that man is Jesus Christ. And there's actually a reason for this, you see. It's because Jesus Christ is threatening I don't know if you know that, but he literally poses a threat to anyone who's ever lived because the truth of the matter is this. If Jesus Christ was and is legit, if he is the real deal, if he is truly what he claimed to be, then that is the ultimate game changer. Because you see, if that's true, then I just can't live for myself anymore. If Jesus was who he actually said he was, then I just don't have the option of serving myself first in everything. If it's true, I I can't decide to only accept truth wherever I deem it to be true or acceptable to me. And if he's legit, then not all paths and not all options and not all beliefs are the same. They just can't be if Jesus Christ is the real deal. And friends, that's the logic behind the backlash. That's the purpose behind the venom towards Jesus Christ and his teachings. There are still many places in this world that violently attack anything to do with Jesus Christ. In the last century, more people were killed for no other reason than being a follower of Jesus Christ than were killed for the same reason in the previous 19 centuries combined. You see, the persecution of Christians isn't going away. It isn't lessening. It's heightening. It's intensifying. It's getting more violent. It's getting more deadly. And there are places in this world, our great country included, where people can serve and follow Jesus freely. They can do so mostly without fear of physical harm or imprisonment and death. But you see, in these places, Jesus Christ is still under attack. It's just waged on a philosophical level. And it all comes down to one word, authenticity. They attack his authenticity. You see, the most popular modern effort is just to sort of explain Jesus Christ away. And it always starts with a compliment. Jesus was a great teacher, they say. One who called us to love and peace. Quite possibly the the greatest role model who ever lived. And he's just a fine example, someone to strive to be like. But anything beyond that, you know, the whole God in human form or the way to eternal life, that's really not true. It's just just the stuff that radical Christians have made up. It's It's just the stuff that the church has run with. Which all sounds good except for one problem. Nobody outside of Jesus made it up. See, no one said it before Jesus. Jesus himself is the one who made those claims. For the last six Sundays for our sermons, we've been looking at a series of statements that Jesus made about his identity. We've called, them, we've called this the I Am series because in each one of these statements, Jesus says, I am, and then he gives himself a title and makes a claim about his identity. And I just want to review really quickly the things that Jesus said out of his own mouth about himself. 
He said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the way. I am the alpha and the omega. And, and to listen to some of these claims that Jesus makes, and he gives himself these titles, this is what some of the stuff that Jesus was saying. Jesus stated with his own mouth that he was humanity's one need. He, Jesus Christ said that he alone gives life to the world. Jesus said that he was the sole light in a world immersed in darkness. He said that his words were the only avenue through which we can stay connected to God. He said that he has been in existence since the beginning of time. He'll be in existence forever and that he will be our judge who determines our eternal destiny. And Jesus even had the gall to say that he was the only way that one could get to heaven. Now let me just ask you a couple questions. Does this sound like a guy who's leaving all the options on the table? Even more, does this sound like a good guy to you? Does this even remotely resemble a good role model? Let me put it to you this way. Those of you who are parents, let's say I offered to watch your kids and, and you, you let me babysit one night and when I was around your kids, this is what I did. I told them that I was God. I told your kids that they should worship me. That I was their only need and if they devoted themselves to me, then I would grant them eternal life. Would you ever let me around your kids again? Would you ever call me a good guy or a great teacher? You see, if you're going to question Jesus' authenticity or, or legitimacy, then at least do it on the right grounds. C.S. Lewis writes, for, for Jesus to have lived as he lived, to teach what he taught and die like he did, he was either God or a stark raving lunatic. You see, he didn't leave, Jesus didn't leave us with the middle ground. Either he really is the real deal, he really is what he claimed to be, he really is God, or he was a nutcase along the lines of David Koresh and Jim Jones and any others who have led people into deep devotion through deception and lunacy and mental illness. You see, today on this Easter Sunday, I want us all to consider the legitimacy of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, I want us to look at one more I am statement that he made. Because I want to argue that it all, all that he said, all that he taught, all that he did, it all hinges on this one I am statement. We find it in John chapter 11. A little context for John chapter 11. Jesus had a public ministry for three years where he traveled from town to town in a region teaching at different places. And in John 11, the majority of those three years have passed. He's coming towards the end of his public ministry. And during the entire time, his entire public ministry, the religious powers in place have openly questioned Jesus' authenticity. You see, it's not a new idea. It's been going on since he showed up. But in much as the same way today, Jesus was a threat to these religious leaders because if everything stayed the same, if nobody rocked the apple cart, then they could stay in power and they would continue to be rich and powerful and elite and controlling. It's just that when Jesus came on the scene, he, he began to call into question their practices. He began to call into question their standards and rules. He began to criticize the way they treated people. And people actually started following him instead of them. So logically, they made it their mission to run a public smear campaign in an effort to convince the masses that Jesus Christ wasn't the real deal. He really wasn't legit. He's not who you think he is, they said. They staged scenarios in which Jesus would heal someone on the Sabbath, and then they would call him a lawbreaker because he was working on the day of rest. When Jesus spent time with those of ill repute and who had openly sinful lifestyles, they said, this proves he's not the real deal because no righteous person, no holy teacher would ever hang out with people like that. 
When, he, when Jesus performed miracles and healed the sick, they said that he was demon-possessed, and he actually used the powers of darkness and evil instead of good to, to, to create those miracles. When he would forgive people of their sins, they called him a blasphemer. And when he made the claim to be God, they wanted to kill him. And before we shake our heads too much at them, at least give them this much credit. They didn't bother with the nice guy theory. They didn't try to create a middle road. In the 11th chapter of John, Jesus arrives in a town called Bethany. It's just outside of Jerusalem. And a close friend by the name of Lazarus, a close friend of Jesus by the name of Lazarus, has recently died from an illness. And, and he's arriving now to be with the family. Only when he got there, only when he arrives, everyone in that town is questioning him. Everybody is second-guessing his actions. They're all calling into question his motives and his decisions. And in their own way, each one of them are wondering about the legitimacy of Jesus. See, his closest disciples and followers thought, thought he was crazy for even getting near Jerusalem. The spiritual leaders had, had already been plotting to kill him. They told him this, this trip had the potential to be a suicide mission. Meanwhile, those in Bethany were wondering what took him so long to get there. You see, John tells us that they'd sent word days before that Lazarus was sick. And, and this Jesus who'd been walking around healing so many, couldn't he have healed Lazarus if he'd just bothered to show up? In the midst of all this questioning and doubt, John includes for us a conversation between Jesus and Martha, who is Lazarus' grieving sister. And in verse 21 of John 11, she reveals her own similar curiosity to Jesus' absence. She says, Lord, if you'd, have been, if you'd have just been here, if you'd have just showed up, my brother would not have died. Jesus tells her in verse 23, Brother Lazarus will rise again, to which Martha replies, I know, I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection of the last day. So thus far in the conversation, she has looked back. She said, Lord, if you'd have just been here, he wouldn't have died. And then she's looked forward. She said, I know at the end of time, at the end of eternity, I know he's going to rise again to the resurrection. But you see, Jesus is not just interested in the past only. And Jesus is not just interested in the future only. Sometimes we get the idea that God's only concerned about eternity. You see, Jesus actually, he actually encompasses the entire spectrum of time, and he's about to give Martha an answer to her questions that covers the past, and it covers the present, and it covers the future all in one. He's about to make one more I am statement. So look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I'm the resurrection life. Anybody who believes in me is going to live forever. Now this I am statement is a little unique in this sense. If this one, okay, if this one actually isn't true, if it's not validated, if it's not authentic, then every other statement he's made about his identity... They're all just empty, shallow words. You see, I can claim whatever I want about myself. But if I'm not legit and I'm not authentic, authentic, it just doesn't matter at all. But if Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, if he has the power to offer those who believe in him life that will overcome even death itself, if, if through Jesus Christ we can literally live forever, well then quite simply... He is God. And if he is God, then he is the bread of life, our only need. He is our only light in the darkness. He is our only source for true growth. He is our only way and our everything. 
But here's the thing, you, you can't just say this. Not even a God looking for a measure of faith when people can just say this only. No, to make such a claim, you actually have to back it up. You have to prove it, basically. And so Jesus makes this powerful claim to Martha, and then he asks to be taken to Lazarus' tomb. And when he gets to the tomb, John tells us we discover it was a cave with a stone rolled over seal in the entrance. There's a nice bit of foreshadowing there. And Jesus asks for the stone to be rolled away, and in verse 39, Martha tells him, listen, this is not a good idea. Why? Well, because he's been in the tomb for four days. And he's dead. It's a dead body. It's, it's decomposing. There's going to be an awful smell. And you see, there are a couple other occasions that we know of in the Gospels that Jesus actually raised a dead person back to life. But in both those instances, the person had just recently died. And so when the news spread about the miracles, what do you think the religious powers did? They called into question the authenticity of the miracle. These people weren't dead, they argued. Surely they were just asleep or unconscious. They weren't really dead. Well, Lazarus here, he's, he's been dead for days. He's been dead long enough that he smells awful. And at Jesus' command, the stone is rolled away, and Jesus says a prayer to God in his words for the benefit of those watching and listening. And then in verse 43, he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And four days dead Lazarus, still wrapped in his burial clothes, comes walking out of the tomb. Now think of the absurdity of this. I mean, the guy was dead and, and, and now he's alive again? I mean, eventually Lazarus will die again. And I'm wondering at that point, do you hold a second funeral? You know, I've never been to someone's funeral twice. Hear this. No man... No mere human being would ever be capable of such a feat. And just in case you're sitting there doubting the authenticity of this miracle, Jesus is just getting started. As you might imagine, word spread about this powerful act. More and more people, John tells us, started believing in him. And they were claiming that he was the Messiah, the promised one who was to be sent from God. And the religious, the religious rulers, well, their status quo was just slipping away. It wasn't slipping away, it was falling away. They thought they were going to lose everything. And so they all agreed they had to take the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die. And the most ironic thing was that the entire time Jesus had been saying the same thing. Jesus Christ has to die. Not long after this, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they come in the middle of the night, and they arrest him, and Jesus commands those who are with him not to fight back on his, on his behalf, because again, this is his purpose. He has to die. And the religious leaders, they get their wish as Jesus was beaten and whipped and spit upon and nailed to a cross and then hoisted up as a trophy in order to suffer for, in immense pain for hours and die. And the ironic thing was that, that all those people who were placing their belief in all those people who were claiming his disciple, they all bailed just except for a few. Because what good is a Messiah if he's dead? There are even soldiers and religious leaders at the cross mocking him, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself, they yelled out. After all, if he could raise Lazarus from the dead, couldn't he just come down off the cross? And you know what they're all doing, right? They're saying, Jesus, hey, we thought you were the Messiah. We thought you were from God, but it turns out you weren't the real deal. You weren't legit. You were no different from us all along. There's just one problem with that. 
Jesus had stated time and time again that this death was the purpose of the Messiah. We've looked at at his statements about his identity. He claimed that he came to offer his life. To do so, he had to die. He came to pay the price for our sins. To do so, the wrath of God had to be poured out on him. He came as God in human form so he could live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death. He came to be our light, to be our way, to be our hope for forgiveness. And for that to be possible, he had to die. He came and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if they die and then he himself died. And the religious leaders had to feel really good at this moment. See, in their minds, they've proven he wasn't the Messiah. Everyone else will now finally see what they've been saying all along. Jesus Christ is not legit. And life can return back to normal. All except for one detail. Sunday came. Like it always does after Saturday. A group of women went to Jesus' tomb and his body had been laid in a cave with a stone rolled in front to seal the entrance. Does that sound familiar to anyone? These women were going to prepare Jesus' body for long-term burial only when they got there, and stop me if you've heard this before, when they got there the stone was rolled away and there was no body. The Bible tells us that an angel appeared to them and asked them a very profound question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You know what he was saying? He was saying to women, did you honestly think that God himself, did you honestly think that the resurrection and the life could stay dead? I mean, this is the same one who called Lazarus four days dead and stinky out of a grave and raised him to life. This is the one who's already displayed he has power over death because he is the resurrection life and he just resurrected himself back to life. And in this one move, this one unmatched display of power, Jesus Christ validated every aspect of his ministry and every claim of his identity. By the way, in case you were wondering whether there's any evidence to back up such a ridiculous claim that someone actually raised from the dead, there is. There's a ton of it, actually. We don't have near the time this morning to go over all of it, but if you'd like to hear or read or hear more of it afterwards, come see me. I'll just present this one case, just this one case this morning. There are over 500 eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Jesus Christ alive again after they saw him die. And all 500 plus of these guys were key members of the first Christian church established in response. And just so you know, the religious leaders didn't give up after Jesus raised from the dead. They still wanted their power. They still wanted the status quo. And the Roman government as well saw any change to the status quo as a threat. And it is of complete historical record that these two powerful groups, the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman government, did everything they could to stop the church of Jesus Christ from forming, up to and including the slaughter of Christians. And historical records, I'm not even speaking about the Bible here, historical records show us that the vast majority of the 500 plus eyewitnesses were put to death for saying that they saw Jesus alive again after he died. And they were all given the choice. They could live, their life would be spared if they would just change their story, if they would just admit that Jesus wasn't legit, if they would just admit they made it up. All they had to say, and they could live. And not one, not a single one changed their story and were put to death. Why? Well, let me ask you, who are you going to fear more? The man who can take your life or the man who defeated death? 
You see, nothing, no threat, no danger, no physical harm could change what they saw. And the teachings of Jesus and their proven authenticity through his resurrection, they've been changing lives ever since. Jesus Christ has been changing lives ever since. And Easter is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we don't celebrate a religion today. We don't celebrate an institution or a church building. We don't worship a concept or seek self-help guidance from a book or look for a crutch to get through life. We don't do that. No, we celebrate and we worship a king, the king of kings, the resurrection and the life and the only one who has ever defeated his own death. And there is no better way, there's no better way to celebrate that than to celebrate the new life that people can find in him. So we're going to have a baptism ceremony today. And you're going to see numerous individuals stand before you and be baptized. And in doing so, they are stating to all that they have found new life in Jesus Christ. Because friends, this is the message, this is the hope of Jesus Christ. That he was the son of God who came to reconcile us to him. And in order to do so, he had to live a perfect life and then die on our behalf to pay the price for your sins and mine. And so that if we just believe in him, Jesus' words, believe in him and ask him for forgiveness, that he will grant us that forgiveness. And we will be in relationship with the God who made us. And Jesus makes this powerful claim. We read it this morning. If anyone believes in me, even though they die, they will live. And if you believe in Jesus Christ and place your trust in him, then eternal life can be yours in Jesus Christ. By the way, he made that claim and then he walked out of his own grave to prove it. And so before we celebrate with these people who have found life, we want to extend the invitation to all of you. See, it's our prayer this morning that the risen and alive Jesus Christ would just get a hold of you today. That God would come upon you and remove the scales from your eyes so that you could see the truth of Jesus and respond. That you'd have no choice but to respond. And we're going to play a song here in a moment. Right after I pray, we're going to play a song. And if you want to find life and you want to find forgiveness in Jesus, and you want to be a follower of his, then come forward. We'll take the Bible and we'll show you how it's done. You come forward, though. Because Jesus Christ is legit. And to prove it, he did something no one else could ever do. He walked out of his own grave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. As we sing and as we pray and as we speak and as we worship God today, we are not singing and praying and speaking to and worshiping a concept or a dead teacher God, we're appealing to a risen and alive God. And Father, with all the power and all the strength you mustered up to raise from the dead, we pray for every ounce of it in here this morning. God, that you would literally bring people from death to life, because the Bible says apart from Jesus, we just exist. We are just spiritually dead. We pray that you would resurrect souls in here this morning. We ask these things in risen Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus never claimed to be equal with all other options. Not once. He never claimed that all paths led to the same thing. But what he did say is this, I came for you. I came for you and my offer is life 
and forgiveness. And he did defeat death, and he's the only one who's ever done that. And there's no better way to celebrate Easter this morning than to get right with God. There's no better way to celebrate Easter than to follow the one who made Easter possible. There's no better way than to find eternal life. So we'll be down here. You come. You come. Stand with us as we sing.
As Brett was saying, the close of his message, there's no more powerful evidence to the resurrection of Christ than a transformed life. Someone who has followed, someone who has said, yes, I believe, and whose life has been completely transformed. Give praise to God as you watch witness of what God has done in the lives of those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their risen Savior.